And there is the reading, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. I would invite any of our sermon audio listeners who have not done so to read those verses. I'll be going back through some of the text as we study and consider the message today, God's embassy. I think it's fair to say that most of us do not like having to endure trials and sufferings in life. But, you know, having to do that does reveal many things about us. Going through difficult times in life, no matter the source of the difficulty, has a way of bringing out both the worst and the best in people. I think that too many Christians, though, in these United States and perhaps elsewhere, have bought into the mindset of our culture that we have come to believe that God owes us all kinds of good things in life. And the minute something doesn't go our way, we begin to question the goodness of God. Or we begin to grumble and complain and show just how shallow our faith really is. You know, being faithful to the Lord is one of those things that it's easy to talk about, but often hard to do. I remember uh, reading a story about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in Italy and how that massive volcano buried the ancient Roman city of Pompeii back in the year A.D. 79. There were many people who were buried alive in the ruins of that city. Pompeii was a major Roman city in those days, very prosperous and important city. We would compare it to Chicago or Atlanta or New York City of some ages gone by. And because that city was destroyed in the way that it was, It provides archaeologists and historians with an incredible picture of what life was like in a major Roman city. I mean, I don't know what kind of warning the people there had, but in some measure, it it caught some of them by surprise because it's almost as if someone took this ancient Roman city, what to us was ancient, and threw a a blanket of molten ash over it and froze everything the way it was at that moment. I mean, you can see videos of this. Uh, There are, I guess, skeletal remains that look like the outlines of people that's covered with this ash in in the same postures, doing the same things at the moment they died. And so we could see how people dealt with the disaster that befell them also and some of the findings that are there. For example, after the city was buried in molten ash, many of the victims were found in their basements as if they had gone there for shelter, while others were found in the upper rooms of the buildings. But I think, as I looked over some of this information, the most remarkable was the place where the Roman guard, the sentinel, the watchman, was found. He was found standing at the city gate where his captain had evidently posted him, his hands still grasping his weapon, his spear. Standing there while the earth shook beneath him, while the hail and flood of ashes and cinders covered him, he stood his post. And there, after a thousand years, was that faithful man still to be found. You know, friends, the Lord places faithfulness very high on his list of priorities according to his law word. He is faithful to us, and as we see from this letter to the church at Philadelphia... Today, he expects faithfulness to be given to him by us. Even when things don't go the way that we would want. 
So in the order of things, there are only two of the letters to the seven churches, two of these seven churches, in other words, that are not told to repent of anything. To the other five, it's necessary for the Lord to tell them, you'd better change your ways or you're going to face the consequences. But the church at Philadelphia is not one of those. Indeed, it represents quite a contrast to the church at Sardis, and so also as an example for us today. Now, there are three main points that I'd like for us to consider as we go through this, and there are a few things under each of these three that I'll point out. But here's the first. Let's consider it's the Lord who's doing the blessing, the Lord who blesses. You know, one of the several themes in these letters is that the pastor, the messenger, the angel of each of these churches are exhorted to turn their eyes upon the living, triumphant Christ. And with that, there are three things about the Lord Jesus to which our attention is drawn today. First of all, his person, his person. In verse 7, we are told that he is the one who is holy and true. In the Older Testament which, again, to remind you, this book of Revelation is bathed in language and concepts and themes from the Old Covenant time. In this uh, context, it's the Old Testament, one of the most often used names for Yahweh, God Almighty, is the Holy One. And here, Christ, the second person of the divine trinity, claims that title. Friends, it is an insult to our Lord. When people, even some people who claim to be Christians, I've heard use this language, refer to Almighty God as though the man upstairs and other such trite, disrespectful expressions. Our response to the very name of Christ Jesus ought to be one of awe and deep respect. But then secondly, in addition to his person, there is his position. That much is given to us in the sentence in verse 7 He who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, that obviously draws us back to our Older Testament reading today and the covenant that God made with King David. The fulfillment of that covenant was made real in and through Christ Jesus. And as we heard in the book of Isaiah chapter 2, regarding this man Eliakim, Again, I'll stop and ask our our listeners to, if you've not done so, go back and read Isaiah chapter 22. This man, Eliakim, who was called to become the chief steward of the royal household of David. He was the one, he was the person that anyone had to go through in order to get an audience with the king. That man had great power such that he could open or close doors of access to the king. Now, in that ancient Roman city of Philadelphia, it's likely that most of the Christians there had formerly been Jews, not so many pagans. At the time the book of Revelation was written, and again, we are going with what I think is the most consistent claim that it was written before A.D. 70, it is accurate to say that most Christians everywhere, though not all, but many, were Jews who had come to follow Jesus. So they were no longer Jews. Now this kind of appeal to the Old Covenant therefore had special meaning to those folks. And the Lord makes it clear to those in Philadelphia and to us that he is the king of kings. He is now the possessor of absolute authority. It's not Caesar. It's not some pagan god. He is the one who holds the keys to all the doors in heaven and on earth. Then thirdly, 
We talked about his position, his person. Thirdly, his administration. Again, verse 7, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now that is, I'll say, his governmental activity as Christ. Governmental activity. We might also say his administrative or managerial activity. One who has the authority to forbid or hinder anyone else from doing anything is clearly one who has administrative or governmental authority. Now, I think there is a special message here for those believers in the church at Philadelphia. And as I said a moment ago, many of those Christians would have been former Jews, and their conversion to Christ got them into a lot of difficulty with the unbelieving Jews of that city. They were likely locked out of the synagogues. The door was literally slammed in their faces, and they were told never to return. All that because they came to accept Christ Jesus as Lord and King. And to them, the Lord gives this blessing, that he is the one who really opens and shuts doors, not the apostate Jews who rejected him as their Messiah. They have no real power to bless anybody, but Christ has the real power of blessing. In him there is hope, there is victory, there is Irene, the peace of Christ. And we should remember this, that when we are tempted to compromise our Christian faith for the praise of those who deny Christ, we should remember that. We might find certain doors of opportunity slammed in our faces, perhaps at a job, perhaps in school, all because we won't go along with the crowd to do that which is contrary to the law of God. Many of us, many of our brothers and sisters, if not us directly, have actually gone through some of this in the past two years with the so-called pandemic. You know, there are those, especially in Canada, whose churches were locked and they were told they couldn't go and they assembled anyway and pastors thrown in jail. Stuff that most of us in this room, if we be honest, we could not have imagined such a thing just 15 or 20 years ago. But here we are. See, there is great temptation to give in under that kind of pressure. But learn a lesson here from the Christians at Philadelphia. Hold fast. Stay the course. Up to this point, then, we have been learning about the Lord who blesses the church. So let's move on to the second major point, and that is the church that is blessed by the Lord. We've got the Lord who blesses. Now, what about the church that is blessed by him? And there are three things here. First, this church is not concerned about numbers. Now, from what we know of that place, and from the comments of the Lord himself in verse 8, this was evidently a church that was small in number. It was not a mega church with hundreds and hundreds of members. I think in today's world, we assume that if a church is large and growing, three services on Sunday, large pastoral staff, well, that's a sign the Lord's blessing that church. But Christ does not automatically bless a large church, nor for that matter, does a smaller church have any inside track with God. But the point that we learn from this small but faithful church at Philadelphia is that it's the attitude, the spirit that counts with Christ. A church may be large or small, but if they are not faithful to Christ and his word in all things, they cannot expect his blessing. And what's happened in too many churches, even now, especially then, back and forth, all through the ages is people don't know how to recognize the blessings of Christ versus the advantages of worldliness, so-called. But then secondly, it's an obedient church. Uh, look again at verses 8 uh, and 10. 
I'm going to read verses 8 and 10. Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. Verse 10, because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I'm going to say something about that in a minute. But you see, right there are people who will read this and say, Ah, well, this is talking about the final advent, the, the coming of Christ at the end. And, and we're living in those ages now. That's, of course, what our dispensational friends say. I'm going to prove to you from Scripture in just a moment why this has nothing to do with that. This seems to indicate that those Christians had endured their share of difficulties, and yet they did not give in. Some of them probably lost their jobs because of their faith in Christ. I mentioned the, the guilds and the trade unions that were run by Jews and pagans. In this case, if they were run by Jews, these Christians would not have been allowed to have jobs or have been laid off or fired from jobs that they had. Some of them had probably been cut off from friends and family. Some of them may have been physically assaulted for their faith. Yet in all of this, they kept the word. And I believe that in this, they teach us today a very important lesson. Obedience to Christ is our part of the equation. The giving of the blessing is his part. Now, like we learned last week, it is God who saves us from our sins and keeps us saved from them. But it is we who must walk with him and follow him. Active, principled obedience. Now, obedience means that there's something or someone which is to be obeyed. And in this case, that means the Lord Jesus Christ, his word, his law. And when the Lord gives us commands, he requires of us obedience. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John, uh, the human author of the book of Revelation, in his first epistle, 1 John 3, 23, says... This is his commandment, the Lord's commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, even as he has commanded us. All right, then the third thing about this church is that it's a church that stands true for Christ. They're an obedient church. They're not focused on numbers. And they stand true for Christ. Now, They had every reason to not do that. They had every reason to fall away. And one thing we should know about that city, its history, is that it was designed as an outpost for the spread of pagan Greek and Roman culture, language, art, music, and religion. So, you know, as these different empires expanded, they pushed out to the farthest edges of their boundaries, and they would go into what to them was considered pagan lands, and set up outposts, we might say embassies, to be the focal point of the spread of, in this case, Roman culture, Roman law, Roman religion, Roman government in that part of the empire. So both the Greeks and the Romans in their day used these cities, and this one in particular, as an embassy, as a means of civilizing the people in that area. And that meant being civilized according to Greek and Roman pagan ideas of what it meant to be civilized. We're seeing the same thing taking place today. We're seeing the, quote, civilizing of our culture by pagans and evil men. You know, according to Christian civilization and a civilization based on God's law, it is objectionable that a man would dress up like a woman and pretend to be a woman. That is an abomination in God's sight. I mean, there are many other things that are against God's law, but I'm focusing on that because it's in the news so much. 
And it's an effort to, quote, civilize, enculturate, formerly Bible-believing people in these United States into a totally foreign and pagan idea of what it means to be a human being. I don't even think these ancient Greeks and Romans were doing anything quite like that. So when you take this, this effort to paganize even uh, worse pagan people with these outposts of Greek and Roman culture, you take that along with the strong Jewish anti-Christian presence there, it made it especially difficult to make a consistent, faithful stand for Christ. But these folks were doing it. They were tempted, though, I'm sure, to deny Christ. Probably the, uh, the most familiar example that many of us have with denying Christ is that of the Apostle Peter, where he denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion. And if you remember that story, the seriousness of the denial was made visible in the bitter tears that Peter wept when he realized what he'd done. Now, we think that denying Christ is not something that we need to spend much time worrying about, don't we? But we may deny him with words, with looks, with activities we engage in, even with our silence. So you need to let this sink into your mind. A, a, a denial of Christ would be, say, you know, we, we have this image of, say, when the, the communists took over Eastern Europe, they would bring Catholic priests, Russian Eastern Orthodox priests, Protestant uh, ministers before these phony tribunals and demand that they renounce their faith. Okay, that's, that's one type of denial of Christ if they gave into it. But that's far from being the only one. That, in some ways, that's easy. I mean, I don't mean to minimize that, but you and I aren't likely, at least I hope not, who knows nowadays, but we aren't likely to stand before a communist tribunal uh, for affirming our faith in Christ and God's law. But no, no, we face the temptation to deny Christ a thousand ways every day. Do we deny Christ in how we educate our children? Do we deny God's law in terms of how we handle our finances? in terms of how we vote, in terms of the politics that we are committed to, in terms of the entertainment that we, that we allow into our minds and hearts. See, all those are means of denying the authority of Christ. We may deny him in all these ways. We may deny him in our homes, at work, in our neighborhoods, in our social lives. Anything we say or do that calls into question the preeminence the lordship, the kingship of Christ over all aspects of our lives can amount to, could be, a denial of him. So then, up to this point, we have seen that this passage tells us about the Lord who blesses us, the church, the kind of church the Lord will bless, and now, finally, the blessings that are bestowed by Christ. Look again at verses 8 and 9. He says, I, I, I know your works. I set before you an open door. No one can shut it. Uh, for you have a little strength, you've kept my word, not denied my name. Indeed, he says, verse 9, Revelation 3, 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. So here the Lord shows them an open door and he promises to, to make something happen for them. And there are, again, three things in this case that we can identify that shows the specific blessings of the Lord. Okay, there's the, uh, the, the reference to the open door. Now, if you've done even a small amount of reading in the New Testament, you know that the idea of a door or an open door is language that's very common. Let me just give you two examples. 
John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Colossians 4, 3. Meanwhile, praying also for us, Paul says, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, those are but two of many, many places where that imagery is used. But what does the Lord mean here in Revelation 3, 8, when he refers to this open door? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 9. Because there we read of the opposition to the church from the unbelieving Jews, whom the Lord graphically calls the synagogue of Satan. And that's not the first time that reference has been made in these chapters. Look at it again. He says, indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you. Verse 9. Now, in that promise is the blessing to the church. The Lord is about to give the church at Philadelphia victory over their enemies and great blessings thereby, not by physically destroying them, but by spiritually destroying them. That is, he's going to make them converts to the faith. The very people who have persecuted the church so savagely are now going to come and bow down and humbly admit their mistakes and repent of their sins and beg admission into the fellowship of the new Israel of God, the church of Jesus Christ. That harkens back to one of our favorite psalms in this church, Psalm 72. That messianic psalm that predicted that the enemies of the king would lick the dust. So new converts are going to worship the Lord at the feet of the believers. And the door referred to here is an open door of evangelism, of spreading the kingdom message. Now, I mentioned this a moment ago, how the pagans at Philadelphia had made it an embassy, a city, an outpost for their culture and lifestyle. Here, Christ blesses the church with the same opportunity. That which the devil raised up for his purposes as his embassy has been taken over by Christ and will be made to serve as Christ's embassy for his mission efforts. And my friends, that blessing, that opportunity remains ours today. We too are supposed to enter that door. We too are supposed to subjugate for Christ every territory from the opposition. You know, many people today are rightly concerned about illegal immigration into our country. I was watching a couple of videos on YouTube of a man who, um, he's based in New York City, but he travels sometimes, and he went to San Antonio, Texas. Uh, sort of ground zero for a lot of the breached wall uh, illegal immigration into this country. And he, re- he interviewed two men, both local, one Hispanic, uh, both natives of San Antonio, one Hispanic, one not, who interacted with these illegal immigrants. They interviewed them to talk to them, where they came from, what they were doing here, and that sort of thing. Fascinating. Stuff you're not getting on the news. But, I mean, it's real-time, authentic, not fake stuff. So people are concerned about that. The, The rising tide of people who come here from other cultures and language groups. But you know something? As bad as that is, and it is bad, it is an open door for the church. Let me explain. Some years ago... A church that I was familiar with in Brooklyn, New York, called Messiah's Congregation, they began to notice all around them were immigrant peoples in the greater New York City area from places like Iran, Iraq, Ceylon, Russia, Vietnam. All of these were legal immigrants, not illegal. But they were places where you couldn't send a missionary 
it would either be profoundly difficult to get the kingdom message to some of these places, or it was downright dangerous or illegal. And there, right before them, that church realized were thousands of unsaved peoples from those places. And so that church began an outreach ministry to those people with the letters UN. I mean, they're in the New York City area. Everybody sees the letters UN because the United Nations is based there. But of course, this was the complete opposite. This was urban nations. And in that ministry, they trained members of their church to teach English classes to these immigrant peoples in their neighborhoods. People who wanted to learn and read and speak English. And urban nations used those English language classes to introduce these peoples to the Bible and to the law word of God and to Christ the King. And since they began that ministry, many of these people have become saved. Now, the second thing that we see here as a blessing from Christ is the future deliverance that he promises. Look again at verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now, I referred to this a moment ago. Now, I hope to clear it up. Because there's a lot of confusion about what that means. So, on the ground, in this verse, we are brought back to the reality of what the book of Revelation is all about. That is the judgment coming, the coming in judgment, and not the final advent, but the judgment coming against Israel, the old covenant nation of Israel, and against Jerusalem for breaking covenant with God. The Lord tells the Philadelphian believers that he is going to bless them with perseverance and safekeeping during an hour of trial that was to come, note that it says there, upon the whole world. Now, in the Greek, teis oikunes. Holes. Please understand, that does not mean the whole of the planet Earth. Oikumenes refers to the known world of that day. And it did not mean something far distant in their future at that time or in ours. In the Greek language in which the New Testament was originally written, there are three different words, meaning three very different things that are often translated with the one English word, world. Here, the Greek word behind this English word does not mean the entire earth. Rather, it means the known world of that day, or more specifically, the Roman Empire. That was the known world of the day. The Roman Empire was vast. It stretched all the way from England and Scotland all the way over to what is modern-day Persia or Iran, and further south and even further north. There was hardly any place you could go on earth that anybody knew about that you weren't in Rome and the empire. So when people talked about the whole world, remember we mentioned last week how the Christians at Thessalonica, it was said they had turned the world upside down, meaning the the culture, the, the empire of Rome. An hour of trial that would come upon the inhabited world is how some translations have it. And so this is the same word found in Luke chapter 2 verse 1 where it says, And it came to pass that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed or registered. Obviously, that's not talking about Japan or South America. So we see then that this is a very specific thing referring to a time of trial that was going to come upon the known world of that day, not our day. Now, that doesn't mean we we don't have times of trial. We certainly do. But that's not what this is referring to. Notice the Lord says that this trial is to test those who live on the earth 
And the Greek word here translated as earth, more specifically, means the land. It's not as broad we think of the word earth. I mean, it depends on how we use it. I could look out there and say, well, that's some good earth out there. You know, that means planting, obviously. Or this is something that's known on all over the earth. That means something more broad. But here, it's a Greek term that is better translated land. It's the same word, land or earth. It can be translated either way. But given the context, it's a reference to the land of Palestine, the land of Israel. That's where the tribulation is coming or was going. So Jesus has reference to the coming of God's judgment against Israel for the crucifixion of the Son of God. Now, when the Lord talked about that in Matthew 24, he made it clear that that trial and that tribulation would be within the generation of those to whom he was speaking. And here in the book of Revelation, we are roughly 30 years closer to that fateful date of A.D. 70. That is why from the very first chapter of the book, we have seen the Lord use this language of the time is near. These things will soon take place. And now here in chapter 3, he says it again in verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Those people were living in a time within about five years of the coming to pass of the prophecy Christ made prior to his death. And his promise is to bless them by delivering from that which would come upon others. Now, today, we may well see judgments from God coming upon us as a nation because of our turning away from him. And we certainly do, don't we? And we may not have come near the end of those judgments. But his promise to the faithful remains the same. They, we, shall be delivered from that which comes upon the wicked. Now, the third and final thing that we see here in the blessings is that he gives eternal rewards. In verse 12, the Lord promises an eternal position, that is, a citizenship in God's city. The new Jerusalem is his church, his holy people gathered and worshiping the true king, Christ Jesus. And in chapter 4, we're going to be given something of a glimpse of what it's like to be worshiping the Lord in that kind of setting. Let me ask you. Let me ask you, would you apply the same standards of faithfulness to your Christian activities that you expect from other areas of your life? Let me clarify what I'm saying. If your car started only once every three times, is it a reliable car? If you, if you have a job and you fail to show up for work two or three times a month, are you being a loyal employee? If your refrigerator stopped working for a day or two every now and then, do you just shrug that off and say, oh, well, it works most of the time? If you miss a couple of car payments or a mortgage payment on your house several times a year or once a year, does the bank say, well, they get it right 10 out of 12 times? If you fail to worship Christ one or two Sundays a month, would you expect to be called a faithful Christian? You know, we expect faithfulness and reliability from things and other people. And the message here is that God Almighty expects the same from us. The problem is, when it comes to so-called religious activities, we tend to see ourselves as volunteers, rather than those under obligation by covenant oath and bound by that oath. See, for a volunteer, almost anything seems to be acceptable. For a bondservant, for a slave who is bound to do his duty or her duty, Faithfulness is expected. Let me leave you as we conclude this message with the words of Jesus that 
All of us should and would want to hear from him, from Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are trustworthy in small things. You are faithful over a few things. Trustworthy in small things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And by God's grace, may we hear that from him. Let us pray.